You're listening to My Unlived Life, a podcast about the path not taken. I'm Miriam Robinson. A few years ago, my life fell apart in pretty dramatic fashion, and I found myself feeling that somewhere I'd made a wrong turn. I suddenly felt very far from home and family and felt even farther from myself. I began to wonder, what if I had done things differently? We don't like to ask this question. It threatens to trap us in the past without a map back to the here and now. So I decided to make the map. Each episode, I interview someone about another course their lives could have taken. We begin at the point where their paths diverged and together, step-by-step, we imagine ourselves into the lives they never lived. Because these lives have a lot to teach us about ourselves if we let them. For this episode, I spoke to Tom Rob Smith. Tom's best-selling novels in the Child 44 trilogy were international publishing sensations. Among its many honors, Child 44 won the International Thriller Writer Award for Best First Novel, the Galaxy Book Award for Best New Writer, and was longlisted for the Man Booker Prize, shortlisted for the Costa First Novel Award, and the inaugural Desmond Elliott Prize, and is now a major motion picture. Tom's new novel, Cold People, about a colony of global apocalypse survivors trying to reinvent civilization under the most extreme conditions imaginable, is an intimate and hopeful look at how people can and do come together against all odds. Crucially, it's out now and available in all good bookshops. When we spoke, Tom and I discussed what might have happened if, at the age of 17, he'd come out to his parents when an opportunity unexpectedly presented itself at a school picnic, instead of waiting until the age of 23 to tell them his truth. Along the way, we discussed full moon parties in Thailand, the impact of hiding your identity at a formative age, and how often others can see you more clearly than you see yourself. We also might have gone slightly overboard with a few of our metaphors. Hi, Tom. Hi. Thank you so much for joining me on My Unlived Life. It's my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. I'm really pleased because in part, I've just absolutely raced through your new novel, Cold People. Um, whenever I interviewed guests, I feel like sometimes I can kind of tell when their books are going to sort of dovetail with their unlived lives and we're going to see sort of little bits of their writing in their paths. And for reasons which will probably become clear, I'm not totally sure that I can see that with yours. Um, So I thought to start, we could um, just have you say a little something about Cold People and then we'll go straight down your path. Yeah, Cold People, I mean, it was written in the depths of lockdown. And I, you know, as lots of people experienced, um, this sense of escapism. I wanted to write a story. Actually, you know, I have a, uh, a nephew now, and I kind of wanted to write a story that all my family could read, you know, rather than some other dark material. And I think this is, you know, in many ways, the word that gets bandied around is that it's dystopian. It's this vision of a future that's dystopian. But really, it's a vision of a near future where I think you have to see <clears throat> the most kind of extraordinary side of humanity, like it's a basically taking this premise where the world is altered slightly in the sense that it's not uh, science fiction in space, but it's a kind of what's called speculative fiction where you take our world and you change it slightly. And it's the idea that we're all trying to survive in Antarctica and what that survival looks like and how people survive and the cost of surviving and the extraordinary things people do to survive. 
Um, and so it's a you know piece of world creation in the sense that it's set in this landscape that is extraordinary. But then it's the extraordinary things that people have to do to survive in that extraordinary landscape. Mm. And the and what I find so amazing is is it's it's optimistic in terms of the extraordinary things that people will do to survive. I mean, it's it's not everyone reverting to cannibalism. I mean, it's it's hopeful. Yeah, because you know we do it all the time. We have these extraordinary breakthroughs. And interesting thing is that you know that you know I think when we're looking at how we're going to adapt in the future to all the challenges coming up. I think we have to be optimistic because I think we haven't adapted yet. So we haven't made the changes to our lifestyle that we need to. We, you know, we, we, everyone knows all the statistics. I think one of the things that's interesting about science fiction is you can talk about these things without getting into issues that everyone feels like they've made up their mind on already because they've kind of read that article. They know that statistic. They know how they feel. This is about, okay, let's just move forward into this world where now it's like it's different. And so you can look at it and feel kind of fresh and coming into it and think, well, what are these changes that we're going to make? And is there this extraordinary side to people that means that we're going to navigate it successfully? And my instinct is we will, but I think it'll be tough. Mm-hmm. And then the question of what change, you know, how do we want to balance those, those changes? We talk about moving forward into a, into that kind of a world and we're going to, we're going to move sort of backwards and then forwards into your, into your unlived life. Um, which I would just like to hop right into, which means that I would love it if you would start by, before we say exactly what it is, just give us a little context for where we're going. Where are we in time? What were you up to? Where were you living? My memory is that I'm 16, but I might have been 17. I can't exactly pinpoint it was in that bit of the late, the last years of my, of my school life. And I was living in Dulwich in South London. And I was at a school called Dulwich College. And it was, you know, the, the teenage years there were pretty rough. Like I enjoyed it. It's a great school, but like <clears throat> they were kind of really difficult years from like 12 to 16. And then they kind of got a little bit easier around 16, 17. But anyway, my parents, um, you, you, there was the option of having school lunches. This is getting into the minutiae, the option of having school lunches. And my parents had given me how much it costs to pay for these school lunches for a term. But I never really liked them very much. I'm kind of a pretty much a vegetarian now. And so I was kind of a fussy eater as a kid. And when they gave me the the money, I decided rather than buy, you know, hamburgers or as a, whatever they get, give me at school, I would just go and get some sandwiches like from the local cafe. And I felt like at the at the end of this term, I should, you know, we we my family went to some school event, which was I remember it being in the summer because we were on the the lawns and we were having like a picnic. And I thought I should confess to them that I'd re-diverted the funds from food to cold sandwiches or whatever. So I just started, I remember just sitting there literally like, mom and dad, this I need to tell you. And I was literally about to say, I've spent the money on, you know, sandwiches. And my dad just turns around and says, without any, as far as I could tell, any kind of prompting or provocation, he just says, if you're about to come out, don't. And I went silent for, I don't know how long. In my head, it felt like a long time, but probably not that long. And then I was like, no, I was just going to tell you that I'd spent this money on sandwiches. I'm I'm not coming out. And I look back and I think, what if I had come out at that point? What if I had said, actually, you know, I'd had the self-confidence, self-assurance, self-knowledge, whatever it is to say, actually, yeah, okay, I am coming out. And how it would have been different. So, you know, for added added context, I actually came out when I was 23. So post-university. Um, 
And, uh, you know, a couple of years into my professional career, I was working as a, a, a storyliner, a script editor at that time. I'm really, really looking forward to delving into this path with you. I'm also like loving the fact that the 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 scandal in your mind was literally that you had just bought like a different kind of lunch. This is, I'm just, you know, it's, you weren't buying drugs. You weren't sort of like, you know, there was there's nothing scandalous at all. It was just another kind of food. Yeah, exactly. That was really, it was, it was <laughs> I don't even know why I felt the need to admit it. I, you know, I'm weirdly, yeah, I guess it was, just, I'd be a terrible fraudster. But you know, what's interesting about that admission is in some ways what I'm trying to say is I did this thing, whereas in fact I did this other thing. And in a weird way, that's a parallel to what was going on, which is I'm, I'm presenting as, or pretending and probably not doing a very good job of being straight when actually I'm gay. So in a weird way, the confession did have a kind of symmetry. It was like, I'm this rather than this. And I said, oh, I bought this rather than that. It was just so in, in a bizarre, I hadn't actually thought about it since you said that, but like as a bizarre echo, it did kind of, there was a weird symmetry to them. Well, and also that it's still you, right? It's still lunch, but it's yeah. it's a different kind of lunch. Exactly. That's the way of putting it. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> it's just a different kind of food I'm eating. I'm a cheese sandwich instead of a cheeseburger. If I'd been really on the ball at that point, I'd have been like, listen, this is the confession. But now you pointed out the confession should have been this. You know? <laughs> I guess maybe that's what we'll do. And And, and just before we start when you have that incredibly pithy remark in the moment, which obviously nobody ever manages to do, especially at important moments. Um, but you said that the years of your age 12 to 16 were particularly difficult. And was it because of this, because you were holding on to this fact about yourself? There were a couple of things, but the thing that's relevant to this was it was, you know, I mean, at, at 12, I think kids become, you know, that this sexuality question arises in a way that doesn't arise when you hit your teenage years and suddenly I experienced, which I'd never experienced before, but like kind of bullying, horrible bullying, name calling at the F word, or, you know, all of that kind of stuff really kicked in around 12, 13. And I was, I went from really enjoying school to really struggling and just kind of feeling completely isolated. And, and, um, and now that I think about it, actually, you know, lunch at school used to be a real chore because you had to go into that lunch hall and find someone to sit next to. And so that, you know, that thing of, you know, not having a group of friends that you could join and kind of sitting on your own or with a kind of the group that was a kind of odds and ends of people who also didn't have someone. And so, you know, maybe that was connected to the reason I actually, you know, I didn't have the option till the age of 16 to opt out of that lunch. So as soon as I could, I did. And so this is why, weirdly, and now the more I talk about it, the more I think actually there are so many parallels that, talk, that my dad was not in a weird way far from the truth when he came to that question. And maybe I was, conf- you know, you, you confess to something by, you know, by proxy almost. But yeah, um, so that was, that was, they were terrible years. I mean, the one thing I loved, I always loved school and I had great teachers and I had like, I really enjoyed academia, like studying and reading so I loved the work. And so I would just, you know, go to libraries and stuff. So it wasn't bleak across everything. It was just the social school aspect was terrible. But the actual study and the school itself were brilliant. But it got easier in the A-level, the kind of 16, 17, 18 thing where people became a bit more grown up. So, and then that kind of brings us to sort of, again, before we go straight into your path, is just that time period that sort of 16 to 23 time period it got a little bit better but you still didn't 
come out? Because, I mean, it sounds like your father was made it very clear that he was not amenable to that conversation. He was telling me not to come out. And then I had, I mean, you know how I'm 40, 44 next month. And I was at a time when it was hard to come out. There was not a single person in the year groups above me or below me who had come out at my school, which was quite a big school. So zero. So there was no sense. And then when I think back into terms of representation on TV or famous um gay figures i just can't i mean the 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 one i remember i mean i remember from elton john who was always used you know he's kind of amazing figure who was extraordinary and at school he was just you know they made fun of him it was like he was a joke and so the one person who you could idea you know idealize was mocked and um it was interesting it was on a, a tangent because he was the only one of the few out people. I, and I think weirdly, I attached the idea that if you did come out, then you couldn't have a career, you couldn't be successful. It was just this catastrophizing of coming out. I just I didn't know that how I didn't see who was out and who was successful, how it would even work. It felt to me like school would become a million times harder, like school would be unsurvivable. Mm. And, and, but even beyond that, then it meant I didn't come out of college. And then, so, you know, when I'm tracking through this point, trying to work out what would have been different is that, you know, in some ways, the the imprint that, that, that the years of pretending when you're smart enough to know better, if that makes sense. It wasn't like you're just a confused, you're in a teenager, you're trying to work it out. I knew that I was gay, but didn't. And that's a very different way of thinking. You know, I really was imprinting things on my brain that were dishonest and were kind of a, a form of self-delusion and, and and trying to work out what would have happened if I hadn't gone through that and face the world. Okay. Well, shall we do it? Yeah, let's go. Let's go. All right. You're 16. And this was at the, this moment. It was at a, a founder's Founders Lunch, is that what you said? Do we call it? Yeah, it's like this event. I remember it because we were on the lawn, beautiful lawns outside the main building, which are also beautiful. So it's a, great, a really wonderful setting. And it was some kind of concert, outdoor concert, because I remember being in the summer. And so I was probably 17 rather than 16. And I'm sitting on this picnic blanket with my family. And um, so that my mother is there, my dad is there, my sister would have been there, my, my brother probably was there. I can't remember whether my sister would have come. She probably would have come. So okay. the whole family is on this picnic blanket. And they're all listening to your confession, your sandwich confession. They're listening to my sandwich confession, exactly. And, I, and you know, I don't know what they, they, they probably made not very much of it at all, but they would have actually heard what my dad said. So they definitely would have, because that was not a whisper. That was to the whole family. And that was, I mean, presumably he's saying that because he 100% knew and just knew that he couldn't, at the time, I didn't, I, I wouldn't have made that deduction probably okay. because I wouldn't have wanted to make that. And I wouldn't, because that, if I'd known that they were sure, then therefore, in some ways that would have made it easier to think, well, if they know, then I should know. Mm. Um, but in fact, what I was thinking is he's asking a question. And if I say no, he'll believe it. If I deny it with enough further and conviction and I don't know, then somehow that question would go away, which was my approach actually pretty much. And actually, if I'd figured that out, that really no one would say that unless they knew, then I would have come to the point of saying, actually, yes, now that you mention it, you know, that's a good point. <laughs> I am. That's, uh, <laughs> you know, I, it should, I mean, I, it, you know, you just don't, I was first of all so surprised by it because I was, you know, it was literally out of nowhere. And, um, 
it was so direct in some ways. But, you know, it, it, if we were playing it as a reality and I'd been able to sit there and listen to the concert and said at the end of the concert, actually, you're right. That's how you think it happens. So he says it, you kind of don't react in the moment. The concert happens, you simmer for a little bit. And then you turn to him and you say. I mean, this is pure fiction because looking back, I was so not ready to do that. It's such an extraordinarily you know, piece of self-composure I'm giving myself at that age. I just didn't have it. And so what I'm giving myself is a kind of, you know, it just, I guess this is why it's interesting. If I'd done that and I'd been that person, it would have been, it would have been such an act of, of adulthood. The lies were very juvenile because it wasn't, that I was really figuring out. Like I'd always been attracted to guys. Like it was never really. And, uh, you know, from whatever it was, whenever you start feeling attraction and, and it was this strange breaking a part of your brain where you're like, I'm just not going to think about it. Or somehow you can, it's like, you know, going to the gym. If you go to the gym enough, you become, you know, you become fit. And so you think straight is the same thing. If you look mm. at, you know, you can kind of teach yourself it. Um, but let's, you know, let's give myself that level of, you know, because other, other, other teenagers now do that, which is said, yeah, I've thought about it. And uh, I think about it during this concert at the end, uh, you know, as we were all walking home because we didn't live that far from school. I said, yes, okay, um, you're right. I should come out. I'm gay. Okay. Would have been a bombshell. What happens next? Well, I can I can only put it together from um, from when I did come out. So when I did come out, I was 23 and my mom cried and was very upset and it was, you know, very difficult. And I left home, so I didn't really speak to my parents for a while. I wouldn't have been kicked out or anything like that. Um, there wouldn't have been terrible, the terrible ramifications that you hear from other people. Um, I think what would have happened is it would have been tears and it would have been a big kind of, it would have been a big silence. I would have probably gone to bed and then they would have spent all night talking about it. I mean, that's what's interesting. And that was what was interesting at 23 is I managed to say, listen, and then we went through the crying. And then, you know, about a year later, I said, listen, we, you know, we are really close. We do love each other. Um, let's just move on. Like, this is crazy. And actually what we did is that exactly, exactly what happened is we just moved on. And, you know, I'm super close to my parents. But what's interesting is that, closeness happened later like I think there's a lot of pain that comes from feeling like you were put in a position where you couldn't talk about things and couldn't think about things because it's very hard to expect the school to set up a dynamic that doesn't exist in society to come out so if your parents don't set it up as well then there's it's nowhere it's not at school it's not in society it's not at home I mean now people can take their cues from tv shows and so since that didn't happen it was only really going to exist at home and since I didn't have that, I stayed, uh, I stayed kind of um, buried in these secrets and until I was 23. My big thing was, you know, if you come out, you can't get a job. Gay people are like are boxed out of different industries. And the question is, so at this age, I'm 17. So I definitely have at least a year left at school. So I haven't done my A-levels. And the question is, is it so disruptive? Is it such a giant thing that happens that you lose all track of your ability to study and concentrate on one thing? That kind of discipline that you need, I don't know whether it's, you know, 
training for whatever it is, a race or for exams, like if you have a huge distraction, whether it's a divorce or whatever it is, an upheaval, it takes up so much emotional energy and time. So, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a bleak way this could go, which is that it, you know, on one hand is um, liberating and you feel very adult, but it just upends everything. And that you both had to deal with then it being tricky at home and then being tricky. I was fortunate. I went to Cambridge. I got really good grades and I was very academic, but you know, I think I had to get two A's and a B or whatever it is. And, uh, you know, there's a, there's a possibility that it would have been so disrupted that I didn't get that, make the offer or I didn't do a good, um, interview with Cambridge. Well, let's think it through a little bit. So if we go straight back to that evening, you've gotten home, you've told your parents, you've told your siblings, you go to bed and, and just retreat. Your mom's crying. What are your brother and sister doing? I mean, the thing about my, my sister and I were very close to, we were like 12, 13, and then we, we kind of drifted apart. And I think there were lots of, she, um, it's really hard because I think she knew in the way that my dad did. So she would always kind of press the buttons mm. that she knew, which always, you know, felt like a kind of power game because it's like one of the reasons um, people who aren't out struggle in those moments is they can sense someone else. The other person senses they have an, an upper hand over you. They can, they can make you uncomfortable. They know that you're not being truthful. Therefore they can kind of make you uneasy and, by hinting, they don't have to be as direct. In fact, they're much more effective if you just sort of skirt around it. And there's a sense of delight in making that person feel like they're on unstable ground and the other person knows it. Mm. Um, and so I had a bit of that with my sister. So the question is, if you make the ground stable, which is I know this is who I am, in some ways you take that away from the other person so that if she lost that, then you know maybe in some ways the relationship would have got better. I think she felt like I was, because I was academically very successful, that, you know, I was, um, you know, there was a sense of, oh, he thinks he's kind of, there was a sense of superiority, because she was always a little bit, she struggled a little bit. And then, um, you know, there was a sense of, oh, it might have actually bizarrely have made our relationship better in some ways, but my sister, my old, she's older, because she would have been like, oh, you know, you know, now mom and dad are crying about him. So he's not the golden child of this sort of family. So in some ways I would have been a fallen figure. So she would have been like, I can kind of, you know, great. We're both fallen. You might actually have an unexpected ally. How about your brother? What's up with your brother that night? He's much younger. So I don't right. think he would have understood or. or, or there's no, there's no yeah, thing. Okay. He would have really fathomed it particularly. Okay. You would have understood the disruption, and I think that would have been. But there was quite a lot of other. I mean, this is the interesting thing about disruption: is my parents are and were antique dealers. My mum sold the sold the furniture that my dad restored, so they were a team. And the issue: those are the self-employed. And the issue with, as I'm sure lots of couples know, when um, you know, when um, your business and your marriage are interrelated, you know, they're very strongly connected in the sense that when things are good they kind of lift everything. And when things are bad, everything falls, you know, very hard to separate them in a way that you can sometimes in, in other relationships. So we experienced, my parents um, were very successful at the beginning 
uh, what beginning of my life when I was at, when I was a young kid, and then actually just by pure coincidence, as I was struggling with my sexuality, like the recession hit in the in you know the late eighties, and people weren't buying antiques. That American buyers disappeared from the market. Inflation kicked in. Interest rates went crazy, and so we went from having you know like a nice life to really like being on the brink of bankruptcy. So there was already disruption in that sense. I was always able to block out that. I was always able to. In some ways, it helps because if you're, you know, as a family living kind of with confined means, then you don't go on loads of holidays. You don't kind of, you know, there's not much to do except to work. You know, you kind of limited in that sense. Um, so in some ways, that was useful, and also you feel like it gives you a kind of drive. You're kind of not. So there's a there's a possibility where this disruption that we're we're creating in in that period. Is not that different to feeling the financial pressure disruption and the and all of the stresses that caused. In some ways, I might have just bundled it together and it might have got lost in the mix of the bigger, and I might have been able to just put them all in the disruption thing and and pass through it. Well, let's think. Let's think if that's what happens. They've been talking all night. How are they doing in the morning? You go down to breakfast. Yeah, this is when they would have you know given their speech, I guess. Because they probably wouldn't be able to give it the night before, and what would that speech have been? I mean, first of all, this is in like this isn't in the depths of the HIV/AIDS crisis because the medication had just started. Um, what year are we in? So I ninety six, ninety seven. Okay. And I think the the prejudices around it are probably at their you know, close to their peak. Okay. And there was this presumption that if you were, if you were gay, you would get it and you would, you know, either die or have to live on this medication and struggle and have a, what it was, you know, that, that was the, that were the associations coupled together um, and the stigma around it. And so I think they would have, I'm pretty sure they would have started talking about that, even though it's such a separate issue. I think that would have been bundled together with that. And then I think, um, I don't think if they, if, the, if you asked that question and someone had come up, they would have been like trying to revert it. I don't think that would have happened. I think they would have had to address it. They wouldn't have been like, you can't be gay. You have to be straight. They wouldn't have been, would have been no conversion therapy or anything totally insane like that. It would have been, <laughs> it would have been questions about like, you know, uh, what the future held, I guess. So I think they would have really been struggling with it as a kind of almost like a practical ramification. Like, what is this going to, you know, how is this going to be disruptive? And the, in the same way that I would have been struggling with that, like, how is it disruptive? What path is it going to put me on? And I think that's why I didn't come out, because I couldn't imagine my future being happy and successful if I came out. It just didn't seem like a viable path. So now trying to imagine it, um, it's not as simple as saying it would have just been happier. But I think anyway, the morning conversation would have been that. It would have been about practicalities, ramifications, viability of, you know, that kind of stuff. Okay. And how how would you have dealt with it? What would it have, what would that have done? Like, how does that feel to you that they're addressing well, it in that way? You know, the question is whether I would have, you know, let's let's imagine how did that would act that age rather than now mm. because now it's super easy to say all kinds of things 
and try to imagine because I then I now know what my college professors were like and how the college work system works. So I know that you know there were other gay people at Cambridge, um, and there were some colleges which were more that were known to be more you know kind of accepting and more tolerant than others, and there were some that were more traditional. So I know all this stuff, all the facts that I now know I didn't know at the time. Of course. Why would have been? I would have been in this if had this happened at that age. I would have been the same in in a weird way, in the same kind of turmoil as my parents. Like I don't know what this means. So if they would have been like, we don't know what this means, I'd have been like, I don't know either. Which is quite interesting because so when you actually came out, you you had the answers to that. You were like, no, I've seen, I've seen gay professors. I've seen people have lives. I understand now that this is like feasible. So and I was in a profession where, like, yeah, I was in t- the TV world. Like, I mean, you know, where there were, there were other people who were out and successful and in positions of authority. So you're right. I had exactly. I had answers at 23, and I could see templates, and I could see paths. And also, I had gone to college. I got my grad. I'd been, I'd, you know, I banked a lot of the stuff I needed to bank, and I didn't think, and I could see that it wouldn't really. I was wrong about that, by the way, in terms of it wouldn't really, I thought it wouldn't really impact moving forward, or at least I could see that there was a path moving forward. Of course, it does impact in lots of different ways, but. Mm. Okay. So you're, you're sitting around the breakfast table and you guys are weirdly in the same boat of not knowing. Exactly. It is weird that we're in the same boat. I think that's true. Okay. What happens next? So the question would have been from their point of view was, do I still, though I've come out to them, stay in the closet in the sense that I don't tell anyone at school? That is my guess. That would have been the would have been the conversation. Okay. You know, like I mean, I know lots of people even now who are who are very well known and who are out to their friends, but not out to the world. Um, that's the thing. That's the thing that goes on today, and Hollywood is <laughs> is full of it. So I'm like, you know, fascinating. That might have been a weird way. I've been mean, given the Hollywood template, which is, you know, you can be out to us, but you can't be out to the world because the world will eat you up. And I'm now that I think about it, that is almost certainly the conclusion we would have come to, and I probably would have agreed with it. It wasn't like if I came out of school, suddenly all these things would open up in terms of there were other guys who were out, therefore I could meet them. So mm. it was like, it would be like a kind of, you know, a sacrificial lamb for no purpose to come out of school. It would be like, what would, that's, I mean, if you're being kind of weirdly pragmatic about it, what would have been the point of coming out of school if no one else was out? It wouldn't have got you anything. I mean, I guess the question taking a step back is what is the point of coming out to your parents? Well, the point of coming out to your parents is that the fact that I then didn't have to, I mean, the, the you know, looking back, one of my big regrets is not coming out in time to college because at college there were other gay people. And that is when you can, it's not about survival and practicality. And it's about, oh, you can now explore who you are. And, and I listened to podcasts like it was about money and college and how much it costs to go to college in the, in the States and then how much the fees cost. And they were discussing the different, perks or reasons to pay all this money and go and um someone said on this oh it's to meet your life partner because it's like full of like-minded people and and um they're kind of smart and etc etc there's there's a clustering of it's like a really good chance to meet the person you spend the rest of your life with Mm. and i was like oh i blew that you know like because i wasn't out and i never thought about it like because i'd never thought i'd always thought college university was about the degree it Mm. never really even crossed my mind there were these enormous 
the valuable secondary elements to it, which is about meeting people and and establishing your sense of identity. And even if you don't find the person that you're going to spend the rest of your life, starting those, you know, first really serious relationships. So at this point in school, you're right, there's no, I don't think there was any benefit to coming out of school in terms of I was going to meet someone. Like if I was going to go, I had to meet, I'd have to have gone into one of the clubs in London or something and try to sneak past the bouncers. Or do you know, that, that's how it would have worked there. But you're right, the question of what benefit it would have done was it would have ended that process of self-delusion much sooner and would have grow, made me grow up a bit. Like the, my relationship with parents would have been much more interesting in a sense of the, all the benefits that came after 23, whereas suddenly it's much more like, this is who I am. I know you love me. Let's just get over it. Which is quite a grown up thing. If I'd said that much earlier, it's like, oh, okay, that's quite a mature thing to say. I think the balance of my, my relationship with my parents would have been much better and wouldn't have calcified for so long. I think a lot of the resentment comes from the bit where I wasn't out, really. So I think there were enormous benefits, but not necessarily tangible benefits. Like they would have been psychological benefits. Well, those are those are majorly important, obviously. So let's hold on. And the, the resentment that you're talking about, do you feel like at this stage in your life, have you worked through that now that you guys have your better relationship? It's actually quite a long time and quite a formative time to feel like you're not being yourself to the people who are most important to you. Yeah, I think it's an it was enormous, like, I mean, that period. And and then what also happens is what continues is um, the kind of casual homophobia that's always kicking around um, in conversation, in situations, um, which can rumble by and, unless someone, you know, people call it out now if they're not gay or, you know, people mm. call it now out now in a different way like it's kind of unacceptable but back then it just kind of rumbled on and if it wouldn't have done that if um if i had come out yeah so you wouldn't have been exposed to that at home it makes you know it makes the sense that there's no safe space that's the thing or no space where that is not acceptable it's hard to know how that would have shaped um but my dad always i don't know why he you know he kind of has this lingering thing where you know, comments and, I mean, it's interesting. He come, you know, he left school very young and kind of really associated with the kind of socialist um, groups and lots of their language, not now, but lots of now it's very different. But back then used to be about masculinity and about like um, tropes about being a man. And, you know, this idea of, you know, low pay was disempowering and, and there was some sense it was wrapped up in a way that being gay then sort of undercut it or it sort of it seemed almost bourgeois or, you know, something frilly, mm-hmm. something that happened in a kind of Oscar Wilde salon rather than, you know, in a factory. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, it's, I mean, these things are so ridiculous when you laugh at them now. But at the time, I think, I don't know, so I don't know what would have happened. I certainly think neither of my parents, my parents would have come up with a, Okay, you're out of the closet, but you're going to in closet mark two, which is like we can see it, but we want you to stay there, basically. So it's like a closet evolution. So I think that's what would have happened the morning after we would have come up with the solution of closet number two. Okay, we evolved the closet. We're going to evolve the closet. I think that we would have come up with this stay in the closet until you're at college, university. Okay. okay. And I, 
I would have agreed with it probably. Like at the time, I didn't never really cared about appearances. I wasn't really, I wasn't desperate. I didn't really drink. I didn't drink till I was, um, I think I didn't really drink till I was 18, 19. So I was quite late. I didn't really go out. So it wasn't like I was desperate to hit a social scene. So I would have agreed with that, probably that that yep. pitch for closet number two. And I would have finished my last year not out at school. Okay. Um, yeah. And I mean, you already described that year as sort of not as bad as the other years because people are doing their yeah. A-levels and they're kind of a little bit more grown up and everything. So that's a sort of manageable year. Um, do you still get into Cambridge? All of that stuff sort of goes in the same direction. I think in this formulation with this evolution of the closet, which is pretty much putting the issue to the side and I don't go and, you know, disappear off into the London club world and try to find myself there. So I just finished the grades. Should we just check in on that really quickly? Do you definitely not go and try your try and find yourself in the London club I just club don't world? think I had like the haircut, the look. I don't think I was physically confident enough to do it. So if I'm, if we're giving myself the psychological confidence, I don't think I just had the physical confidence to do it. So I think realistically, I think that would have been a hard, a hard one to imagine me doing at the time. Okay. So I don't think, and I, you know, all, you know, all, what social options at that time were all the pub and, and parties that were all straight. So there was no, like I was turning down this path over here. So even if I'd come out then, it's not like I then suddenly had this option that existed. I just didn't. Um, so I think, you know, realistically the path would have been closet and then new closet and then trying to finish my studies in the same way. Okay. All right. All right. So you maintain the closet, you get to Cambridge. Where does one live in their first year of Cambridge? Well, and there's one year that, that we've skipped over, which oh. is I did a gap year. Oh. I, I taught English in Nepal for six months. Okay. And actually this is in the real world. It was amazing. So, um, uh, you go to Kathmandu, you train, and there's like it was a for charity, obviously. And this charity took people from across the country, so they were all new people. I didn't know any of them. So then we all meet in Kathmandu to train to become teachers, and then we go to villages, and you're paired up with someone. And um, I think that's interesting because I had a huge crush on a guy I was paired up with, but I wasn't out. And so, you know, at that point, you're like, this would have been the first opportunity. Obviously, I don't think he was gay. So I'm not in touch with him now. And so I don't know what, um, but I, as far as I remember, he was straight. And so at that point, you're like, okay, well, this is an opportunity to explore. And at that point, I would have, you know, you would have, I would have definitely have said in those meetings where you stand up and you say who you are and, or not even, well, I don't even know what the people say when they stand up. But at that point, it felt like, you know, if you're going to a different country, you're with a group of people you don't know, you've come out like to your family. This feels like the moment where you would have come out. Yeah. This is where we, we shed all of the closets in Nepal. Yeah, right. So this group that, that it doesn't feel like there are any big consequences here. Like, cause you're going to meet, it's a new group of people and you start, they're smart. So they kind of traveled, um, then you know they're going to teach English in a different country. They and I know. I mean, I now know them, but at least I think I would have gone in and thought like, this is the, the this is the moment you can do it. Amazing. Okay, so you do it. You'd say yeah. it in the in the circle of trust or whatever when you guys are all introducing yourselves. Everybody reacts fine. 
or not? Is that right? Everyone's fine? Well, you know, what's interesting. I don't know because none of them, as far as I'm reading, I'm not super close to all of them now, but as far as I know, all of them are straight in that group. Okay. Every single person in that group is straight, men and women. So there's like 16, I can't remember the exact number, 16, 20 of us. So there is that question of which one, when you're pairing up, who would have wanted to be with the gay guy? And so the groups that, that you, you go off in partners and um, the women are with women and men, are, you're the same sex groups. Mm. And then you know, there's uh, two Nepali teachers from Kathmandu go to the village as well. And I don't know, I can't, I mean, Nepal is an amazing country and everyone is very physical there. It's like holding hands, guys hold hands and all this kind of stuff. But I don't think there is any open homosexuality. I think it's very buried. Okay. Um, so there's the cultural issue, which is complicated. And in fact, I remember like them, people making jokes about, ah, oh, everyone, all the guys, because guys literally would like sit on each other's leg in the street. And like, it was really very, it's kind of very lovely. It's like completely like totally fine because you're not allowed to do that with women. You can't like public affections from man to woman are not allowed. So the public affections were guy to guy. Mm. And it was private with, with the guy and the woman that was off. That was out of the street. So just trying to think culturally what it would have meant for that affection to have been meant that you're gay. They wouldn't have done that. They wouldn't have grabbed my hand, for example, because I'd be like, oh, it would be misconstrued. You know, the Nepali would have, they were, they were like university. They were kind of international kind of aspirational. So maybe they wouldn't have had a, maybe it wouldn't have been a big deal as much as there were lovely people who would have been wanted, wanted to be with a gay guy. I don't know. You don't know. Can you think? No. I think in a, in a sense, none of them would have cared, but you, you know, whether they would have been, I don't know, because people are still, you're living in like a tiny, tiny room. It's not like you've got your own room, like sleep that, you know, a sleeping bag in a tiny little room. We were, I mean, the house room was, had the most amazing view over the, over the mountains. It was incredible. You do all the washing at the, um, at the, uh, the outdoor tap thing. And, you know, there's a kind of sense of, um, it was always the argument used in the military. You're in confined quarters with someone, you don't want the person looking, all that nonsense. Well, that kind of would have applied here. I think whatever that, it feels to me like that kind of stuff would have worked itself out. I guess that's what we want to get at is, is, is your sort of first experience of coming out to people other than your family? Like, generally speaking, do you sort of weather it? I just want to make sure we're not sending you back into the closet after having been. Uh, no, I think yeah, so they were they were a smart group. It was a new country, a new place, and there were no real professional stakes. It wasn't like it would have impeded my career. Okay, you know, just yeah. uh, just I was teaching. This was it would have been a great. This is why I think the regret exists is because that would have been a perfect opportunity. And yes, there would have been crinkles and complications that I can't quite foresee and there were cultural issues all that kind of stuff there were crinkles then you just work it out you know i guess that's it yeah that that feels like it's it it's the it's the opportunity to test what your new boundaries are now that you're being honest so if we say that that's how nepal goes and you come back we went to, um, afterwards the trip, we went to my, uh, I guess what, roommate in, in Nepal, who I was teaching with, planned 
to join another fragment after we finished the education job to go to Thailand together. So we would have been with the other people and join, but I was like, let's go. And I had this crush on him. And suddenly, like at the end of the thing, he said, I'm just too, I've been away from home too long. I don't want to go on to this, this secondary trip in uh, Thailand to go to, you know, full moon parties or whatever. And so he decided to go back to, um, back to England. And I went on to Thailand, but I was, and I never, I, I don't know whether I admitted it. I've admitted myself. I don't know whether I've spoken about it to other people, but I was heartbroken. That was my first experience of like heartbreak. I didn't know oh. it at the time. I, didn't understand. I was just like, oh, I'm really sad. But I got to Thailand and I was just like rudderless. I didn't enjoy the trip at all. Uh, the full moon parties. I mean, there was, it was fun. It was a great, it's amazing to see any country. And it was, they were, they were all still a, a fun group. But that was my first experience of that heart grief. And so I was, it was a kind of depression, I realized, for the whole trip. And eventually, I remember I, um, um, we went to a full moon party. And I remember I drank way too much and fell asleep on the beach and woke up and like all my clothes are ripped. I'd lost my wallet. I was like, at that point, I thought I'm falling apart. I need to. So we, a, a few of us decided not to do any more of that. And we went on this trip down through um, through Malaysia, down to Singapore. But I still felt, and it was like seeing the sights, like being, you know, not drinking at all, really, just kind of exploring. And I remember thinking, I just can't shake this feeling of grief that he's not here. Mm -hmm. And so I went back as well. But in this new version, like he was straight, so he wouldn't have been someone. I would have probably had a great time. I'd have been like, yay. <laughs> <laughs> I'd have been like, this is amazing. And maybe I would have met someone um, because, you know, it was a great place to meet people from all over the world. And those full moon parties there, everyone is there. Um, so in some ways I wouldn't have had the grief, the heartbreak, which I didn't even understand and which I interpreted as almost a kind of depression. I just couldn't put my finger on it or at mm. least I could, but couldn't articulate it. Certainly not to anyone else. Um, and so that would have, wouldn't, I wouldn't have experienced that. Um, I mean, I might've experienced a different kind of grief, heartbreak from some, from a, from an actual encounter rather than a purely theoretical one in my brain. But Let's figure are... it out. I want to figure out whether or not there's a, do you think that you, is there a specific anyone or there's just encounters? There was no one in the group because everyone is No, straight. but like in, at the full moon parties, do well, we find I you mean, someone else? Yes. Or... Yeah, since we were writing it, why not? And then I go off rather than going off with this fragment down to Singapore, I, I go off with them and have a great time. Let's have that as a experience because I, what I think will be not, whether that's true or not, it would have been great to have got to university and been like, I know who I am. I've, you know, I've had some life experience with someone and was, and you've learned something. So you're turning up on the front foot. I think that's what would have been great about college. That's kind of the point of rewriting it. So if we give myself that, then that sounds nice. Well, and also it sounds like, obviously you turned up at university slash college on the back foot because you're holding this because you're in closet number one, but also it, because it sounds like you're holding a whole bunch of grief as well that you kind of can't articulate. So that's a sort of doubly difficult thing to arrive at university at the age of 19 when your sort of life is right ahead of you. It's like a lot to be holding. So you're kind of slightly unencumbered now when we get you. Definitely. I mean, that's a good word. But I mean, that grief is interesting because 
I've noticed it with other people. Like I know someone who's very successful in their fifties and when they were in their, I don't know, twenties and thirties, they were, I don't know whether they were out and they were heavy set and they were physically awkward and, you know, and they, I now see this person who's, you know, in better shape and who's out, et cetera, et cetera, but he's kind of obsessed with catching up with all the things he missed. And so actually there's a weird energy to it. It's like he's, there's a kind of, I need to catch up with the missed years. Mm. And it's not a good it's not a good way of approaching a present tense situation. Like when you meet someone, you shouldn't feel like I need you and I need you and I need, I need these 10 people in this room to catch up for the 10 people I missed when I was, you know, in my twenties or whatever. So it would have been, <clears throat> so what I was holding onto there is, Oh, I've missed that whole period. I've got this grief, but even if we, the half, half moon person that I met and that had half moon party that I've met and that had ended, you know, with heartbreak, at least you can tell people, this is what happened. This is the world. And it's very like, even if it ended with pain, you're still in a much better position than the one I had, which is I couldn't talk about it. And I couldn't, in fact, I remember um, going, I hadn't seen this guy for a while. He was one of my closest friends out of the, out of the Nepal group. He said, well, I'm, I'm, I'm out now. This is how I'm 34 when I met him. He was like, oh, you were obviously heartbroken. He knew. Wow. He was like, but he didn't say at the time, but he said, he knew. Well, obviously heartbroken. He didn't go with that guy. And I was like, oh my God, literally, does everyone see my life clearer than I do? And that feeling is weird. But um, it's quite interesting, actually, because it, there's a couple. I mean, it's this sort of the same with your dad who didn't know it, but knew it in terms of his original question to you about whether or not you were about to come out. You do seem to. Uh, there's just a couple instances of somebody knowing it without you knowing it or. Well, the reason, I mean, jumping ahead, the reason I actually came out in the end was I met, I was uh, on this long running TV show, Family Affairs. And one of the actors on it, who was this kind of gruff, she was the woman who ran the bar. She was kind of funny, had this really gruff voice and she wore leopard skin prints and stuff. And she just kind of came up. So she smoked a lot, had this really gravity voice. And she came up to me and she, she could see I was one of the new story people. And she was just like, she was so blunt. She was just like, so you gay or straight? And I was like, oh, I'm straight. And she looked at me and she, and I didn't even know this, but I didn't even know, I didn't even know her at all. And she just looked at me like, she didn't believe it. And she just walked off. I didn't say anything mean, just carry, all the conversation carried on. But I saw in her face, this is, and this is when I'm 23 now. And I was like, this stranger you know, who doesn't know with this gravity, she can't know me better than I know myself. So that was in the end, the reason I came out. Wow. So the, first, the other person seeing me clearer was in the end, the reason why I thought I can't do this anymore. If I'm going to be a writer, I have to at least be able to articulate who I am. But you're right. I didn't know that at the time, but looking back, there were those moments actually earlier, which I kept refusing. They're like invitations and I kept refusing it and refusing it. So that period we're talking about, is had I accepted it, then all of those interactions that then are built on a slightly shaky foundation change. So coming to college, so my friendship with him would have been different, um, I guess, and um, maybe better, but it was a good friendship anyway, but maybe it would have been, um, maybe it would have been different anyway. So I get to college then and I'm able to turn up and be like, this is who I am. Mm. And so you're where you're at, you're in your halls of residence, presumably. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm at. I went to St John's, which is. I mean, I picked it because it was beautiful. It's it's its location was beautiful, and um, um, you know, really strange reasons. I picked it for aesthetic reasons, which is I think it had a nice reputation. I really wanted to stay. They had good accommodation, so I knew I could stay in historic buildings for three. I mean, ridiculous looking back, but it wasn't edgy. I mean, I think they had quite a big emphasis on sports and rowing, and um, they actually did have quite a lot of good creative opportunities as well, but they weren't as publicized. I don't know if any of them had a reputation for being having kind of LGBT support the only person who I was, um, who I, and I, again, this is a relationship that never happened because I was not out, but he was at King's College. And I think King's College did have quite a few out gay students at that time. And I think their reputation was that they were progressive. And I didn't know any of this because I didn't research it because I wasn't thinking about it. But now looking back, I think that, I don't know what the, I haven't looked into it recently. And so this is all very historical and I'm sure they will have very strong LGBTQ support structures now, but they didn't back then. And I think King's probably is the most progressive. Let's imagine I went to King's. Who are you hanging out with then? More progressive people. Even the people I found, because what happened is, is this is the strange thing is that the, at the first, uh, the first year at John's, everyone there, the, the group there, you know, I never felt quite, at ease with the group that was there. And, you know, so there was this question when I, cause I was like, I want to be a writer. And I remember John's, everyone was like, how's that going to work practically? Like no one else wanted to be one. I mean, everyone yeah. else, I mean, they had much more grounded ambitions. And so I always felt a little adrift there and I ended up becoming my, my closest friend. Um, or one of my closest friends at college was um, uh, a gay woman from a different college provocative, brilliant figure. And we hung, we became best friends. But it was like I was, you can see I'm like edging closer. I'm like, you know, it's like the world, I was moving out of one world, which felt a little bit like an orthodox world into a kind of, I'm getting slightly, I can, these are tiny baby steps. And then the people I hung out with were the people at King's. So I then met the, the, the guy who was, his name was Richard, who was at King's. And we went to some club night at wherever it was in Cambridge. I remember sitting on the floor next to him. It was like whatever, two in the morning. And there was a moment where we could have kissed, but we didn't. And so, you know, in the end, I end up with the people that I could have been with. And and then what would I have done? Would I kiss that guy? I don't know. I would but like to can... I would like to answer that question. Or as in, I would like us to answer that question. Do you think you kissed the guy? A hundred percent. Yeah. I was pretty close even when I wasn't out. I mean, that's not, a, that's not a hard one to answer. Okay. That's a, yeah. That one's a hundred percent. But, um, and it's funny then, cause I, uh, we were really good friends at, at college and I hadn't seen him for ages. And then I met him maybe, I don't know, six, seven years ago. And there was that strange sense of, oh, we're meeting now, but I know who I am. But in some ways it wasn't like a kind of, it isn't the same thing as, that moment then the energies are very different later you think you can get those moments back but you can't do you think you can ever get them back that similar thing that you were talking about before with that sense of wanting to go back or wanting to make up time you know when you're sort of trying to like feel like you've missed something do you think you can ever recreate those energies you kind of can't especially that particular moment those university like yeah i think there's no way it's gone 
Oof. I think it's sad. You know, this is why, you know, you think, oh, I come out 23, you can, you lose them. This is why it's interesting to replay it because I'm like, those moments are lost forever. You don't get them back. You don't come out at 23 and think, oh, I can now catch them up. In fact, the, the attempt to catch them up is, is, is a disaster. You have to think, well, I'm dealing with new opportunities and new situations. But that kind of, you know, sitting on that, whatever that club it was at two o'clock in the morning, that's gone forever. Well, and I'm thinking of what you were saying before about a university being the place where you meet your someone or you potentially meet your someone. And I guess um, I've got, we don't have much time left, but I, I want to know if you think possibly you meet a someone. You see, this is the big, this is the number one, in, in replaying this in my brain, the number one question is, what would it have done to rebuild um, the way I see relationships? And what I think would oh. have happened you know like you would have really had of experience it's the it's the experience of finding someone and not working trying to find someone else because that started so late for me um it's like starting even though you're 23 years old 24 years old whatever and but it's like being 16 your judgment is 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 a 16 year old when it comes mm. to relationships you're the, the, you know, the, your anxiety, all of that stuff, you haven't been road tested in a way that everyone else does. So when they find their life partner at say 25 or 26, they've gone through different experiences. They know what they're looking for. They understand who they are in a relationship, not just as a person. But if you haven't done any of that and you start to actually, I think the whole moving forward would have been different. I think, you know, that sense of regardless of whether I'd found someone at college or not, mm. you would have found someone and worked out, okay, this is what I'm looking for in a relationship. This works for me. This doesn't work for me. This is, I'm good at this, but I'm not good at that. I know I need this from someone, but I, I'm not so worried about that. All those questions that people answer gradually over time. So by the time they're at the point where they want to make that decision, um, they've gone through a lot of it. And, you know, um, I mean, I think it changes everything. It's one of those things where it changes everything about relationships. And so the idea of this is the big myth of coming out late, that somehow it's just a, a time loss. Actually, it's like a whole evolutionary loss, mm. you know, relationship evolution that you lose. And that you, when you start, um, because you're 23 and, or 24, you're an adult in many ways, but in that sense, you're not. Do you feel like you can say like what effect that sort of late entry into the road testing phase has had on your relationships? Yeah. I mean, I think, look, I, I, I you know, when I, at the beginning of the twenties, I just didn't know what was important and what wasn't. And so I was constructing it and I think I, you know, I was making, and these aren't, these are hyper personal. These aren't about, general statements for other people but for what was important to me I think I was like I, you know the, the surface of a relationship was important to me and then the kind of inexplicable things or the very personal things I just hadn't articulated or figured out yet so I discounted them in a way and took a took more stock of things that were kind of more tangible like I think there's a magic to relationships that is very individual the thing that you're looking for and it's hard to know that until you've experienced it a few times and felt it. Um, and so I was starting very late and I don't think I made the right decisions. And then I also think because I didn't really understand relationships or believe in them, 
when I did find someone because he was kind and nice, I think I stayed in that relationship for a very long time when it didn't feel right in some ways, but I discounted that feeling for a long time. because I thought, well, other things are right. And maybe this is as good as it gets. And I don't think I would have, and I'm pretty sure actually, I wouldn't have done that if I'd gone through eight years, seven mm. years of other people. If the full moon party thing, I would have been like, oh, it's got this, but it doesn't have this. And then there's a college, there's a couple of people. And and then, you know, I don't know, in summer holidays or whatever afterwards, you know, you would have met someone and then realized it didn't work for this reason. With that information in mind, age 25, you're at a place where you're smarter. It doesn't mean for sure, because, you know, you're still dealing with the chance of who you bump into, et cetera, et cetera. But your brain would have been primed differently. That's, I think, underlying this entire kind of piece of speculation is that priming of your brain with experiences. And so when I got to 24, my brain was empty. I was just like, oh, now mm. I'm starting afresh. And everything I'd experienced with women didn't count for anything because I always felt they were built on a lie. It wasn't like I could take any lessons from that. So you really are like a complete novice pretending not to be because you're an adult. Yeah. You have to look the part. You have to look like you know what you're yeah. doing. And you're confident and you're like, I know what I'm looking for, et cetera, et cetera. And actually you don't have a clue. And ultimately in order, presumably in order to really have something meaningful, you have to be vulnerable enough to present yourself to the other person as the sort of less experienced, less prepared person that you are. I am going to bring this back around to your book because there's, there's a few pages right in the middle of your book that I like punched me in the gut and there, I won't go into too much, but it's the moment where um, uh, an Israeli scientist encounters his creation in a, in a cell for the first time on its own. And there is, I thought it was the most beautiful depiction of vulnerability I have read in such a long time because he's so exposed to this being who can kill him. Um, and their conversation is so sort of simple and so sort of spare. And I really, really wondered while I was reading it about, uh, your, about you in relation to, to that feeling of vulnerability, because it was, it was perfect. It was just absolutely perfect. And fundamentally that's what you, require and that's what you learn during those during those formative years that's so much harder as you get older that's so interesting i mean i'm glad actually you brought it up because at the beginning um when you said oh it, you know it's hard to wonder how this connects to your personal life actually it's a deeply personal book it's just that on the surface because the premise is extraordinary and you're moving all these people to antarctica and all the characters uh in extraordinary situations but actually it's a deeply personal, particularly that Israeli um, scientist and his relationship with his creation, to me is, you know, there's a, obviously there's a kind of elevated status to it all because of the situation. But to me, it's really talking about lots of things we were talking about, which is who are we? Who do we fall in love with? The vulnerability, trying to work out what the other person's wanting. Like, I mean, it's, it's that to me is like the first time I've really addressed something in my prose, which is very deeply personal, um, in, in a moment which seems so distant from me personally. So mm. I am glad we managed to manage to kind of pivot back because I did want to say, actually, I think in some ways, I mean, I think the thing about writing these big stories is you have to pour intimacy into them. And that was kind of what I did. 
I think that's a really nice place to stop. I have to ask you one final question, which is just if you could bring something from your unlived life into your existing life, and that can be something really practical and tangible. It can be a sandwich or it can be um, something a bit more um, ephemeral. What might that be? You know, the weird thing about this conversation is I, I, you know, is that what I did was I went back and thought, what I need to answer the question I didn't answer for those seven years, which is what is that weird magic I'm looking for? And uh, I decided I had to find it. So that was the question. I, you know, the unanswered question from those years was the thing I brought into my life. Yeah. That's gorgeous. Not a, not a sandwich. Well, I'm so grateful. Thank you so much for talking to me about your unlived life, Dom. It was really fun. laughed a lot about silly metaphors the sandwich the closet you name it but his description of life before he came out wasn't very funny a life where like metaphor one thing stood in for another where an image or an approximation was substituted for the authentic story where even heartache resulted from something that never actually happened it must have been a really isolating feeling and he made a really important point at the end of our chat about how missing those formative years of being himself in relationships set him back farther than one would think in terms of being able to connect with partners even after he'd come out. In that sense, I loved how, from the moment Tom came out to his family and his unlived life, he was never alone. Straight away, he and his parents ended up on the same side, equally uncertain of how he should proceed, forming a plan together. They were like collaborators. Even his sister became an ally followed by friends abroad and then at university. In that sense, he really gifted his younger self a new way of feeling during those years, one in which he'd made himself vulnerable to the people closest to him and in which, as I imagine so many people are now, they were totally on his side. If you're a fan of My Unlived Life, I'd be so grateful if you'd help spread the word by rating, reviewing, subscribing, or following wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, by sharing on social media. Thank you so much for listening.